Why did I choose to talk about the history of millennialism? Who was it? Winston Churchill said to the House of Commons, I think in 1948, he says, if, if you fail to learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it. So I've, I like history, and I like to learn from history, and I don't want to repeat the things that our forefathers, did you know you had forefathers? <laughs> yeah. I don't want to repeat what they did. I told you that first week, I showed you a picture of my great-grandparents' grave in the old Lamine Church of Christ in Blackwater, Missouri, and uh, we'd visit there as a kid in the 50s, and Grandma and Grandpa wouldn't go to church because they couldn't get along with the people down there at Old Mean Church of Christ because they believed something different on millennialism. And they couldn't agree with each other, so they all, each sat in their own corner reading their own Bible on Sunday morning. Well, I don't know if they knew it or not, but like I said last week, Mark 16 does not say he that believes and is baptized and has the right view on millennialism should be will be saved. You know, I don't know if they knew that or not, but... Millennialism is about the thousand-year thousand-year reign of Christ. It's not R A I N, as Steve thought, you know, because God was never going to destroy the world with water again. So when he read about the thousand years of reign, it's what? <laughs> He's a very funny guy. <clears throat> anyway, forms have existed uh, before <coughs> Christ and in other religions. There's four major Christian views today. Actually, two pre-millennialist views, Jesus coming before the thousand-year reign. One of them is historical and the other is dispensational. Uh, and we talked about the historical last week somewhat. <clears throat> and post-millennialism, uh, Jesus coming after the thousand years, and Augustine was a proponent basically of that, and uh, Alexander Campbell um, was a post-millennialist. And then amillennialism, which was Augustine's point of view, and uh, Origins and Clements and Ambrose and Jerome's, and it's still the major view of the Catholic Church today. That's probably on my next slide. But, and the Church of Christ has a history of various teachings. I was just reading an article a little while ago from John Mark Hicks talking about the Tennessee tradition versus the Texas tradition. Well, premillennialism versus amillennialism. Um, and in a couple of weeks, we'll talk more about some of the history of millennialism in the Church of Christ. Uh, Jesus doesn't know when he's returning, but it hasn't stopped people throughout the ages from predicting it. <clears throat> and we'll see more of that today. Uh, many people have died. I gave you the reference of the Taipings in China in the mid-1800s, where 20 million people died because of this idea. <clears throat> and where did this idea come from? Well, we read this last week in Revelation uh, 20 and 4, about those being raised and, live, and reigning with Christ for a thousand years. And then last week we talked about what they believe in the early church, and Justin Martyr was a uh, proponent of this and, and actually indicated in his writings that it was part of preaching the gospel, preaching the historical premillennialism. Um, many apocalyptic Millennialist movements, and we looked at these last week, um, existed in the early church. The Montanists, the Donatists, the Novationists, and the Miletians, among many others. <clears throat> and, but due to constant non-fulfillment of predictions, anti-authoritarianism, which a lot of these movements become, 
anti-authority against the king and against the church, uh, and carnal expectations, not, not dissimilar to what the Islamic jihadists think. Um, three alternatives emerged. We looked at the sabbatical <coughs> idea. Eusebius came up with the idea that, uh, and is written in the book of Barnabas, as we read, <coughs> that uh, there's 6,000 years since creation, and then Jesus is going to return and reign for a thousand years. He gets that because in Psalms it mentions the day of God with God is like a thousand years. And he created the earth in six days and rest on the seventh. So he came up with the 6,000 years from the creation. And that was the sabbatical. And after 6,000 years, uh, it would have been 500 AD. <clears throat> and on Monday 1, gave 500 AD as the return of Christ, um, assuming that there were 5,500 years between creation and, and the incarnation of Christ. <clears throat> and then the other, uh, second idea, Augustine's idea, was a spiritual. That thousand-year reign is allegorical. It's symbolic. And <clears throat> the, it, it eventually, because of the uh, conversion of Constantine, the emperor, uh, and Christian becoming the official religion of Rome, uh, the idea that the Roman Empire, eternal Rome, was the manifestation of Christ's reign on earth. And of course, we know Rome was sacked in 410. That kind of blew that theory. Um, in Augustine's City of God, his famous work, uh, instead of the Christians being to blame, the fall of Rome. He said it was a moral decline and uh, corruption and stuff like that. Eventually, he and Jerome endorsed AM2, but Augustine's anti-millennialism was the official position of the church and all the texts, and it still is today in the Catholic Church, <clears throat> which means basically what Augustine said, the thousand-year reign of Christ, that's a symbol, it's allegorical, we're living in the thousand years right now. A thousand years doesn't mean a thousand, just means a bunch of years. <clears throat> so after Augustine, there was a radical split in millennial discussion. The texts all endorsed Augustine's position, officially, uh, but there was continued use of AM2. Now, after Eusebius came, came up with the sabbatical, after the year 500, they realized, hmm, that must have been wrong. So came up with AM2, Anno Monday 2, which recalculated the creation of the earth and the, the year of the world when Jesus was incarnated. And then they came up with 801 as being the time when Jesus is going to return. <clears throat> so, you know, kicking the can down the road a few hundred years, that helped a lot of people. And eventually the practice of counting down to the year 6,000 indicates that the debates continued. Well, in the end of uh, the Roman Empire was in 476 AD, and the last emperor was Romulus Augustulus. Romulus was supposed to be the founder of Rome, and Augustus was the first emperor of Rome. Not Julius Caesar, he was a dictator. So it's kind of odd that the last emperor of Rome was named Romulus August Augustulus. But Rome, uh, for all intents and purposes, was no more than 476, and that led us into the entrance of the medieval time or Middle Ages, however you want to call it. And you can imagine that time <clears throat> if, if uh, Liechtenstein, you know, invaded the U.S. and took us over, destroyed us and sacked us, 
or some other country. I just made that up. Um, <laughs> you know, it'd be pretty catastrophic. I mean, Rome's been an empire for hundreds of years, and all of a sudden you get these barbarians coming down from the north and sacking us and killing us and taking all our stuff. And, but what did Paul say on Mars Hill? Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill. God hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed, and the bound of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Who's in charge of creating nations? and setting their boundaries, maybe geographically, maybe time-wise, maybe it's talking about both of them. One word, three letters, starts with a G and ends with a D. <laughs> so right there, right by the word, number 26. Yes, uh, and you know, Augustine argued that the fall of Rome didn't matter, you know, with imperial millennialism, Rome was the eternal kingdom, the manifestation of Christ's reign on earth, and then it fell. Ah! Well, Augustine's argument was, yeah, that's their own fault. They're corrupt and sinful and moral decline, all this kind of stuff. God creates nations. God does away with nations. <clears throat> so, moving on, Gregor Tours was a Frank historian, early French, is what that means. He tells about a false Christ of Burgess, a peasant who in the afterlife, aftermath of a terrible plague in AD 591 presented himself as Christ and was widely greeted by enthusiastic crowds. As we'll see, part of this history that we're seeing in the first early church and medieval times is the historical events. And there was so many catastrophic ones. I read some terrible stuff, I couldn't even repeat it. You know, things that happened to people back then in uh, mass, uh, it excites the idea of Christ returning and destroying the wicked and setting up this beautiful and wonderful abundance stuff and joyful and sinless kingdom, right? Uh, you can't blame the, crowd, the, the people that lived under those horrid circumstances in some cases. <clears throat> and guess what? The Bishop of Claremont had this peasant, peasant assassinated and tortured Mary who traveled with him. Nice bishop, huh? Um, but despite that, you know, the uh, millennial activity still continued. Gregory also states in his History of Franks that since this man came in 5790 and not 6000, then clearly he's a false Christ. So he bought into AM2, meaning Christ was going to return in 801. Because uh, we had, uh, what, several years ago before 6,000. And it just reminded me of that scripture in Matthew. It says, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And as I'm looking at all this history of millennialism, just barely scratching the surface with these 34 slides, uh, many, many, many people did come and pretend to be Christ in some way and predicted his predicted them setting up a kingdom or many of them predicted that Christ would come on a specific date and set up a kingdom. <clears throat> so these are just a few examples. 
So the same uneasiness that appeared among Augustine and his colleagues in the 5900s with AM1, that means the 400s, emerged as AM2 in the 700s. In the 700 people living in the 700s realized, oh, Jesus is going to return in 801. And the closer you got to 801, the more excitement, millennial excitement existed. This time, Venerable Bede, Venerable I looked that up as a title, uh, if you only make the lowest of the three levels towards sainthood in the Catholic Church, you're only a venerable. <laughs> this guy was an English uh, monk, uh, an extremely intelligent man. <clears throat> but anyway, he played the role of Augustine and corrected AM2 to AM3. Jesus was born in 3952 AM, which is Anno Monday, the year of the world. So in other words, the earth was created in 3952 BC or something. And if you add or subtract from 6,000, that means Jesus is going to return in 2048. Which, looking around this room, I think a huge percentage of us are going to be raised from the dead if he returns <laughs> in 2048. And the few of us that are alive back then, Betty being one of them, will be raised up and join the rest of us in the, in the air. But you can see his uh, little chart here. Everything is so perfect. You know, everything is a multiple of 500 years from creation to Abraham being born, to the Exodus, to the temple completed, to uh, the, the restoring Jerusalem, to Christ's first coming, and then 2,000 years later, 2048. I'd never heard of that. I'd never heard of anybody getting excited about the year 2048 until I read this stuff. Did you? Anybody? How many people, how many of you bet he's coming exactly in 2048? Stand up. <laughs> Who knows? He could come tomorrow, I think. We'll read a scripture about that in a few minutes. <clears throat> anyway, this guy, Venerable Bede, he devised the BCAD system. Now, the calendar we use wasn't invented until 1582, I think. So this is way before that time. But he invented the BCAD system. It's a much easier system to figure stuff out. After Jesus' incarnation was AD, and of course, before was BC. And more currently, they've changed that to BCE and CE, right? Before Common Era and Common Era, because people don't like to use religious words. Anyway. He wrote this book, and if you, I scanned through this book. This guy was a genius. He had calendars from all over the world, Egyptian calendars and Arabian calendars and English calendars, all kinds of calendars, and he finally figured all this stuff out. It's called The Reckoning of Time. And then after all that stuff, after figuring out the whole system for AD and BC, he concluded with a quote from Augustine's response to Heschelis regarding the proper eschological eschatological attitude. In fact, in chapter 68 of his book, Augustine's letter, I actually had to look this up in the book to find it, but <clears throat> 199, uh, Augustine says, if, if we say that the Lord will come soon, we risk, however, sincere our motives, bringing discredit upon the faith if we are wrong. Duh. <laughs> but if we remain agnostic or acknowledge that his coming may be delayed, we can only be pleasantly surprised if we are wrong and we put no one's faith in peril. Sounds pretty, pretty intelligent. 
Besides, we read the scripture that says Jesus doesn't know when he's coming, and we put forth the idea that if you could figure it out by Daniel 2, Daniel 7, and Revelation, and calculate it, I think Jesus is smart enough to figure that out. You know, but if he doesn't know, then you can't calculate it based on scripture. <clears throat> anyway, by the midnight of uh, 5900s, that's the 750s AD, Bede's chronology and Easter tables were adopted widely. And there's, there's his book down below on the left. And then Anno Domini, you got the NCMXX, that's 1931 on that building. We still use the ADs, BC stuff today after all these years. <clears throat> anyway, did the church leaders lose track of the nearing apocalyptic date of 801 AD, even though all official writing and documents within the church uh, endorsed Augustine's beliefs? Well, probably not. In the first day of the year, AD corresponded to 6,000, which was 801 for their old calendar, but it's year 800, January 1st for us. So it's Christmas Day and 801 for their calendar at that time, but it's 800, uh, January 1st for our modern calendar. Uh, Pope Leo III crowned Charlemagne <coughs> Emperor of Rome. Okay, so this is how many years after the fall of Rome? It's 324 or 25 years after the official fall of Rome and Augustus, Augustulus was emperor. Charlemagne became emperor of what they called the Holy Roman Empire. And this was a dramatic act to restore the Roman Empire by allying a Christian emperor with a pope to dominate the political and cultural scene, which some, which some revived as uh, imperial millennialism. When Rome was in its heyday, a lot of people thought Rome, eternal Rome, was going to last a thousand years. It's the manifestation of Christ's reign, R-E-I-N, <laughs> on earth. <laughs> um, it's kind of interesting. Uh, eight, 801 or 800, uh, the Holy Roman Empire didn't fully fall until 1856. That's just a little over a thousand years. Maybe the Holy Roman Empire was a millennium. They were just off by 56 years. I don't believe that. I just thrown that out. See if you would. <laughs> anyway, with the passing of 6,000, year 6,000, that's 6,000 years since the creation of the world in 801 AD, or 800 in our calendar, the failure of the empire to provide stability in ways of apocalyptic fears arose with the devastation wrought by the Hungarian, Norse, and Muslim invasions. Now these, these invasions were devastating to the places where they invaded. Uh, I don't know about the Hungarians. Right now they got Viktor Orban over there as the prime minister. He's a good conservative guy. I like him in Hungary. But back then they must have been some wicked people coming coming out of the north east. And then along the along the north, out of the north were coming the Vikings, the Norse, and they actually uh, penetrated all the way to Paris and sacked Paris or parts of Paris several times. And they were all about getting gold and, and wealth and terrible, terrible for these people. Uh, and then the Muslims, in 711 they started invading Southern Europe and especially the Iberian Peninsula, which is kind of interesting because I, I went to Spain and Portugal earlier this year and saw a lot of architecture that the Moors had 
created when they were there. I was reading because today you don't, I didn't see evidence of too many Muslims <coughs> in Spain and Portugal. And I read that uh, in the 1500s, about 3 million of the Moors or Muslims uh, self immigrated, EM, exited the Iberian Peninsula. And then there was a battle of tours between Spain and France that took place in the late 700s where the, the French basically repelled the Moors from going into Europe. And that's probably what kept Europe from becoming totally Muslim or one of the reasons until the 2020s when you just, you know, invade all of Europe anyway. But the government at that time or the and the power of the church, they couldn't they couldn't keep these people from invading and destroying and stealing and and when events like that happen, that excites millennial activity. I mean, wouldn't you want if you're constantly invaded and your relatives destroyed and you you know everything's stolen? Uh, wouldn't you want Christ to return and meet out some justice? <laughs> Anyway, as, as I looked through the history doing this study, the current, I, I said this the first week, I think, everybody seems to think in their lifetimes, the historical events going on in their lifetimes are the most important historical events that ever occurred in all of history. You know, and so you see all these millennial books written and people equating the current historical events of their lifetime with the symbols and, and allegories in Daniel and Revelation all the way through. And these people, I mean, they had it a whole lot worse than I think we do. We mentioned last week when Rome was sacked, they thought at that time that Gog and Magog, those references uh, were the Visigoths and Goths. And of course, in the early 70s when I read some books, you probably read the same one. It was China and Russia. You know, throughout time, we kind of associate our own terrible historical events with the symbols in, in the apocalyptic literature. Now, some, someday, somebody might be right about it. I don't know. Anyway, another interpretation of Augustine's view in the sabbatical millennium argued that either the year 1000 or the year 1033 would mark the millennium's end. This is a, a post-millennial type of view. If Jesus is going to come at the end of the thousand year, that's post, right? Uh, this view had two distinct advantages. Number one, can you guess why they picked the year 1000 and the year 1033? I think everybody said it. Yeah, the birth and the death of Christ. Anyway, uh, it was not strictly millennial in that the coming apocalyptic moment was the end rather than the beginning of the terrestrial earthly millennium. And two, it permitted ecclesiastical leaders of the 8th and 9th century to redate the end to a distant future of the 11th century. If you can imagine the 11th century, the thousands being way off in the future, because we're looking back a thousand years. <coughs> Another way to kick the can forward, right? Well, here's another example. Theoda, a false prophetess, came to Mainz in Germany 
in 847, announcing that the world would mines. Thank you. I don't know how to speak German. <laughs> okay. I couldn't even speak French. I had to take French every year in Canada. <laughs> mines. Okay. Thanks for correcting me. Uh, I'll probably say mains the next time I see it, though. <laughs> I know. I'm incurring your wrath. Uh, anyway, she's announcing that the world would end the next year and attracted believers among both commoners and clerics. There's a picture of the cathedral there. That was, that was built in 975 AD. Or at least the one that, assuming, I got this off the internet, assuming that's the Mines Cathedral. <laughs> that picture of the Mines Cathedral. It said it was. Anyway. Uh, one of the few arguments available to opposing clerics was that used by Gregory Tours. It says she can't be right because the millennium isn't coming for another 150 years because he believes in the 1,000, you know, a thousand years of reign since the birth of Christ. So he was, well, he's an historian. So I don't know if, how much he uh, believed in or had uh, faith in Christianity or not, but. Anyway, the years A.D. 1000 133 represent the end of the sabbatical millennium, which is post-millennialism. Uh, no other year in Western history receives as much attention from historians and computists. Like A.M. 1, A.D. 500, there was a wide range of apocalyptic behavior in the year 1000. At least that's, that's a major view I got in my studies, although there was one guy that says, the common person he didn't know what year it was. They didn't have a calendar. They didn't know it was a thousand or not. The only way they'd get that is from the bishops, you know, the educated people that would tell them that. But is there something magical about nice round numbers? Like the year 2000, Y2K? There was a little bit of millennial fever back then. Y2K, some of you, very few of you old enough remember that, I know. But uh, <laughs> In Germany, the young emperor Otto III used apocalyptic symbols and created the Bamberg Apocalypse, an illum uh, illuminated manuscript of the book of Revelation. Supposedly that's a copy on the right. Otto was allied with Pope Sylvester II and to demonstrate imperial millennialism, he visited Charlemagne's tomb on the Pentecost of the year 1000. So did, he, did they give a date in the year 1000 when Jesus was going to return? I don't know. Anyway, there was an alliance in the Holy Roman Empire between the Pope and, and the Christian kings. <coughs> Christian king. In France, which at the time was not part of the Holy Roman Empire, uh, millennialism came from the people. There was a huge movement called the Peace of God. There's a book right there. It would be interesting to read. Peace of God, Social uh, Violence and Religious Response in France around the year 1000, written by whoever can read that. Thomas, somebody, or something. Thomas and Richard Good. <laughs> uh, and then we'll talk more about the Peace of God movement. But uh, relic cults and pilgrimages. Relics was a pretty big thing back then. You know, you got Saint so and so's thumb sitting in this little glass case, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, penitential processions. I was reading in Lechtenstein today, they even have penitential processions at certain times of the year and feasts where they're in a penitent attitude, you know, kind of a parade, a prayerful, penitent type mood. 
Um, apostolic communities, I kind of think of Mother Teresa, a group of Mother Teresas, where they fed the poor and clothed the, uh, the naked and gave shelter to the homeless. And these were the apostolic communities. And then, of course, there's many popular charismatic preachers, <clears throat> like Eddie. Very charismatic. I just saw you back there. Um, the Peace of God movement represented the first major popular expression of millennialism that was encouraged by the clerical and the lay elite. Um, historians, historians of the 11th century use unusually optimistic language to describe a new dawn or a vast renewal. You know, periods, different periods in time, even in our history, you know, we have these periods where, it, what, what, what was the one in the 1800s, uh, the, the Great uh, Revival or something like that, you know, we've, we've had periods of those too. The Great what? Awakening. Awakening, yes, very good. That's why it's always good to have Steve, if you're teaching a class, because he knows everything. Literally, <laughs> he's on a. He's in our morning Bible class on Thursday morning. When people can't remember a scripture or something, just ask Steve, and he's got it right there. <laughs> I don't know why he does it. <clears throat> Those accountant types. Anyway, when the final uh, drama did not come in 1000, many millennialists redated to 1033. Obviously, however, in the interim, you're. 2009, this uh, messianic leaf from uh, Cairo destroyed the Holy Sepulcher, there's a picture of it today, and forced Christians to convert to Shiite uh, Islam. And you know there's two different types, mainly there's a Sunni, which is 85% of the Muslims in the world, and the Shiite, which is 15%, and it's all about leadership. One of them believed that you could elect the next leader of, among the people that are qualified. And then the Shiites, they believe, no, it needs to be a relative. It needs to pass down from the blood of Muhammad down to whoever. Anyway, uh, this combination caused France to experience a second climactic wave of peace assemblies and pilgrimages to Jerusalem. I mean, a pilgrimage to Jerusalem from France back then? Holy schmoly. That, that must have taken a long time. They didn't have the 500 mile an hour airplanes like we've got. Uh, here's the, the Holy Sepulchre, Sepulchre, supposed to cover the alleged tomb of Christ as well as Golgotha where the cross was. And here's a history. I just put this in there. Scott puts these things out there in the web. You can look it up and read it if you want. But through the years, from 336 when Constantine the Great first built it, all the way down to today, and I showed you a picture of what it looks like today, or part of it anyway. <clears throat> it's mainly the same as it was in, in, uh, since 1810. There's a bunch of people that destroyed it and rebuilt it. The Crusaders rebuilt it in the 12th century. Anyway, because of, uh, because of these things, uh, it, it uh, promoted peace assemblies and pilgrimages to Jerusalem. Peaceful pilgrimages to Jerusalem. This is still the year... Uh, in the thousands. The Crusades didn't come along until 1100s and 1200s, where it got a little less peaceful. <laughs> you saw the movies. Uh, by 1022, 11 years before the 1033 deadline, <clears throat> concern over the spread of heresy was so great among the French clergy that heretics were executed for the first time in European history. 
Isn't that just wonderful? <coughs> Is it August 27th when we have the ministries? Yeah, do we have an execution ministry? <laughs> oh, the safety team. Okay, the safety team will take care of that. Okay. Good. Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, anyway, this monk from the uh, monastery of Cluny, they call him a Cluniac, not to be mixed up with uh, Maney monastery, monastery, where they call them maniacs. But anyway, the Cluniac historian uh, described the vast assembled masses at these peace councils as shouting, peace, 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 and believing that they had formed a covenant with God. You'd think that the years 1000 and 1033 passing without the return of Jesus would squelch apocalyptic expectations in Western Europe, but instead it just profoundly changed them. Instead, the Peace of God movement introduced a new and more creative and popular millennial movement spurred by the remarkable innovation of the peace councils. Notice how they group these words together. The bishops and the counts and the abbots and the kings. Back then, if you wanted to survive, you had to place yourself under the protection of somebody that had some power, right? And so the, the government and the religious leaders get together and provide this protection for the peasants and peace abounded, you know, as long as somebody was under their protection. <clears throat> How long is that going to last? <laughs> what did Ronald Reagan say? most dangerous sentence in the English language is if somebody knocks on your door and says, I'm here from the government, I'm here to help, <laughs> or something like that. <clears throat> anyway, the peace of God was the most enduring and powerful wave of millennial thinking in the high Middle Ages, and the first successful post-millennial movement, meaning that for the first time, adherents believed that the dramatic improvement of the world would come about not only as a result of Jesus' appearance, but through the work of good people. So here's this question that keeps coming up. This came up last week when we were talking about something. So the question is, so good people can bring about the return of Christ? And you can see in the diagram down below, that's a post-millennial view because the return of Christ is after the thousand years, which for post-millennialists could be any length of time. They don't have to have exactly a thousand years. <clears throat> While popular messiahs continued to appear, the period after the year 1000 was characterized by vaster movements, often approved by church authorities. I, yeah, for what reason? And then the First Crusade revived the popular enthusiasm for both the peace and pilgrimage movements of 1033 in new and more aggressive forms, from pre, uh, peace in Christendom to war against the infidel, from penitential pilgrimage to armed crusade, changed dramatically from the peaceful pilgrimages to bloodier. <laughs> well, here's another example. Peter the Hermit, another popular messiah, managed to win an approval from the church hierarchy for his millennial enthusiasm. Over time, however, some of these popular movements developed a militantly hostile attitude toward church authority, intellectuals, the wealthy, Jews, and others, thus provoking the most violent and revolutionary elements of millennialism. You know, that, that sentence reminds me of what Ted said in his Sunday morning class, if, if you were here. He was talking about Joel, but he was, at the end he was talking about 
movements like this, that actually defines Nazism and communism. Hostile uh, attitude towards church authority, intellectuals, the wealthy, Jews, and others, thus provoke the most violent and revolutionary elements of millennialism. Uh, that's true, and I believe Ted, because he's a very smart man. <laughs> that's millions of people dying over some of these ideas. <clears throat> well, we, are, we already looked at the Taipings in China. 20 million people died in that millennial uprising. <clears throat> anyway, millennial hopes and ambitions reached new levels as a result of the work of Joachim of Fiori. Did I get that right? Well, I think that's French. Now, I took French every year in school because I was Canadian, and I still couldn't speak it. The teacher would bring me in after school. Ah, ba, se, de. I'd say I still can't even say it, so I can't pronounce these things. Anyway, well, it could be Spanish. Okay, Joaquim, is that what it is? Joaquim of Fiori? The first officially approved theologian to reject Augustine and return to a notion of future millennium. You just, when I mispronounce words, you just translate in your head to the correct pronunciation. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, Joachim of Fiori, that's when he lived, said that there were three great ages of history. Have we seen this before? Who was it? The Montanists came up with the uh, different ages in time, the age of the Father, the age of the Son, the age of the Holy Spirit. He's coming up with three different ages, the age of the, age of the Law, age of the Gospel, age of the Holy Spirit. Uh, not unlike dispensationalism today, except there's seven ages. Anyway, uh, his eschatology revitalized medieval millennialism, and soon after his death, prophecies attributed to him were linked to current events and were believed to predict imminent apocalypse. And we discussed this a couple weeks ago. The expectation of thousand-year reign of Christ, each generation not only applies current historical events to the symbols and allegories in, in the apocalyptic literature, but they uh, also claim it's imminent. It's coming now. In fact, somebody in this room sent me a text this week, forwarded me a text that said, uh, I am convinced, I don't know, I'm quoting this exactly right, but I'm convinced that before two years is over, the rapture will occur. That's fairly imminent. And then, I don't know who, somebody, was it you, Larry, asked me, what did St. Thomas Aquinas believe? The guy would live from 1225 to 1274. I had a good Catholic friend one time. She studied to be a nun. She was in the convent for years. And I said, well, what do you study? You study the Bible? No. We study St. Thomas Aquinas. So I went to the library, got St. Thomas Aquinas, you know, read it and had these quotes to... <laughs> <laughs> disprove what she was trying to tell me. And she she kind of laughs and says, do you always read books at that level of detail? <laughs> no, just so I can refute what you're saying. <laughs> anyway, I couldn't find a thing on what St. Thomas Aquinas believed as far as the millennium was concerned. Not a thing. I, so, I don't know. Maybe I need better research skills or something. But he seemed to be more interested in philosophy 
especially since the age of reason was coming, uh, especially the idea of reason and uh, faith. You know, some people say, all you need is the Bible. You don't need that science junk. All you need is the Bible. And then other people say, like the guy in Gibraltar. I went to Gibraltar earlier this year, and, and the guy that I, was our guide, uh, he was uh, a citizen. He was born, born and raised in Gibraltar, which is not part of Great Britain, which surprised me. And during our conversation, I said, well, why don't you align yourself with the Spanish? Because you're right, right there. You know, Spain is right there, you know. So no, those people believe in that mytholo mythological religious stuff. We believe in science. You know, so there's people on both sides. But, but what I did read in, uh, about St. Thomas Aquinas, he related to those two. Uh, science and faith come from the same source. I can't disagree. Anyway, a very intelligent man. It's, it's hard to read him because it's uh, probably like Peter said, he's kind of like Paul. Well, if he sent, you have to read it two or three times. Anyway, the Hundred Years' War, uh, that was from the mid-1300s to the mid, just after the mid-1400s, a war between France and England, basically over who should be on the throne and this kind of stuff. But, you know, devastating to several generations. You know, they send their sons off to war and they don't come back. They're dead. Or somebody comes down and raids your village. Devastating stuff happening all the time to people back then. And the Black Death, well, the Black Death from 1347 to 1351 killed about a third of the European population. And other catastrophes always going on. You know, wouldn't that cause the faithful to want Christ to return now? <laughs> and save us from this misery? Did those people have it worse than us? Sounds like it. And here's, now this is a French. And I even looked up how to pronounce this thing. Even though I can't pronounce the French words very well. Rocatelati or something like that. Anyway, in 1356, the Franciscan John of Rocatelati prophesied that... Let's go up there. Prophesied plagues, a revolt by the poor, and the appearance of Antichrist in Rome and Jerusalem would be followed in 1367 by the ascendance of a reforming pope, the election of a king of France as the Holy Roman Empire. That's kind of weird, because initially France wasn't part of the Holy Roman Empire. And the onset of a millennial reign of peace and prosperity. I'm just, this is just scratching the surface of the number of incidences and people and bishops and you name it that, you know, proposed a specific date. Did a single one of these dates that was ever proposed, did it ever come true? If it did, we missed it. <laughs> right? <clears throat> and we got to look for, forward to 2048. Anyway, anyway uh, popular, often revolutionary millennialism continued in the 14th century as well. Some of these, some of these uh, millennial groups got really violent. They were anti the church authority, anti government authority. Uh, there are some really terrible things that I read that are not repeatable. The things that some of these people did to the nobles when they captured them and their families. Anyway, thousands of peasants or pastoral shepherds swept through the French countryside in 1251 and emerged again in 1320 believing they could bring about Jesus return by freeing the Holy Land. Ah, if we just kill off a few Muslims, a few thousand Muslims, maybe we can force the return of Christ. But this is kind of a recurring pattern too. 
we can do something to initiate the return of Christ, get the return of Christ to come soon. Uh, we don't have to be good. We can actually go and slaughter people and get the same, same as a result. The Black Death surprisingly caused a short supply of labor that gave commoners an economic advantage, right? The aristocracy responded by instituting authoritarian labor laws and wage restrictions, ripening the people for revolts. <clears throat> Sounds like tea parties or something. Uh, apocalyptic preachers such as John Ball led the English Peasant Revolt in uh, 1381. Uh, 20,000 of them stormed London. So much for peaceful pilgrimages. Uh, here's another example. At the beginning of the 14th century, Arnold of Villanova identified a date some uh, 70 years in the future as a millennial moment, which the Pope found far more favorable than uh, more immediate prophecies of Father Dulcino a member of the Apostolic Brethren, who preached the imminent fall of the religious and political order. He was anti-authoritarian too. He was looking for the fall, and most of these millennial groups do. They can't stand the government, can't stand the church. We, not, we need the return of Christ to mete out justice against both of them and lift us poor people up. Give us what we need. That's a recurring theme through history. <clears throat> uh, other millennial groups appeared, forming powerful, enduring counter-cultures, uh, such as the Hussites, named after their founder, Huss, was really a, almost a prototype Protestant uh, movement um, in Czechoslovakia. Do you know anything about that? Quite a bit, yeah. Do you? Yes. He was a Catholic priest, and he just looked around and said, especially with indulgences. Yeah. He said, this isn't right, this isn't right, this isn't right. And they said, quit saying that. He kept saying it. So they said, well, why don't you come to Constance and uh, let's talk about it. And he did, and they burned him at stake. Really? And so now in this center of Prague, they make statue. It's like 70% of people are atheists, but they have a uh, holiday of John Huss. Really? Like this religious man. Who, I have a picture of him in my office, actually. No kidding. His courage to stand for what he believed. But his followers became very combative. Yeah. Well, and, it, and the Taborites. The Taborites. Yeah. That's what, and whose violent Taborite wing of true believers was intent on bringing about the Millennium Kingdom at any cost. That's actually a movie came out a year or two ago about. The Taborites? Uh, one of those guys, yeah. Hmm, I'll have to <clears throat> see if I can find that. Anyway, they get that name because. Mount Tabor, Tabor, however you say it. There's a Czech village called, a city called Tabor. But it, it was named after Mount Tabor where the yeah, but, traditionally... But the, the Czechs would be named after these guys. Yes. Anyway, traditionally the tra transfiguration took place there and, and a, a lot of people believe that Jesus would return to the same mountain. <laughs> Of course, I envision based on Thessalonians that he's in the air and everybody sees him at the same time. I don't picture him going down onto a specific mountain. But anyway, uh, Messianic preachers throughout the Middle Ages continually calculated new dates for the apocalypse in addition to the sabbatical dates. And the latest one is 2048. So get ready. <laughs> uh, millennial beliefs and aspirations had a tremendous impact on social change in the Middle Ages. As, as you can probably understand. <clears throat> so I want to read Mark 13. 
But as for that day or hour, no one knows it, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, except the Father. Watch out, stay alert, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. He left his house and put his slaves in charge, assigning to each his work, and commanded the doorkeeper to stay alert. Stay alert then, because you do not know when the owner of the house will return, whether during evening, at midnight, when the rooster crows, or at dawn, or else he might find you asleep when he returns suddenly. What I say to you, I say to everyone, stay alert. So from that, would you say it's possible that Jesus could return tonight? Yeah. Well, some millennial beliefs believe certain things have to happen before Jesus can return. So you would be wrong if you wanted to believe, believe that. Uh, it, it's a, and another scripture, which I don't have listed here, says he would be coming as a thief in the night, right? See where's that? <laughs> Steve's our go-to source on everything. Sorry, I don't remember it at all. Oh man, that's the first time you've ever said that. <laughs> Sorry, I put you on the spot, man. Oh, he's looking up something. Else. Okay. Anyway, um, in the 1450s, this is pre-Luther. Luther was around. 1500, we'll get to that next week, Reformation and beyond, but somebody invented the printing press, right? And these, we were talking about the Bible thumpers last week that when Roma sacked in 410, people were complaining that uh, those dead gum Bible thumpers that took over the whole Roman Empire and even the emperor became a Bible thumper and all this. And we, I was picturing them slamming their NIVs against their hand, thumping that Bible and they didn't have any Bibles. I call that the new Italian version, not the new international version. But, but in the 1450s, when the printing press came out, I mean, how many people could afford a book actually printed by a printing press back then? I mean, how long was it before the common person could have access to a Bible? Probably a long time. But it's kind of interesting that the Middle Ages themselves, depending on how you want to date them, or the medieval times, they lasted 800 to 1,000 years. The Holy Roman Empire lasted about 1,000 years. Rome only lasted... Well, I don't know how far you want to go back, you know, when Romulus founded it, but if you go all the way back there, maybe that was about that. There's a lot of thousand-year stuff, you know, throughout time. It, it was a thousand years between 1000 A.D. and 2000 A.D. Yeah. Who knew? Amazing. Yeah, I know. These, these numbers, nice round even numbers, are magical. And they somehow elicit millennial excitement just because of the magic of the number. Well, if you've, if you've read the book, The Reckoning of Time by the Venerable Bede, you see how many, how many calendars he scarfed up from all over the world to figure out all this stuff. And then that's not even the calendar we use. Is the calendar we use actually correct? No, I don't think so, because most people, most scholars think Jesus was born like four to six BC. And we didn't even get didn't even get his incarnation correct in our own calendar. <laughs> so, you know, the year 2000, maybe that should actually be the year 1994 or something. You know, it's, it's, it's so messed up. I don't know how you can put trust in a year just because it has a nice round number sound to it. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> what do you got to say, Fred? Amazing. Oh. First Thessalonians 5 2. 
Yeah, Jesus is going to come as a thief in the night. So if he could come tonight or tomorrow, then I don't see how I could set up a system of millennialism where certain events have to happen in history related to our current history before Jesus will return because that's stopping him from returning as a thief in the night. If you're expecting Jesus to return in 500 and 801 and 2048 and 1000 and 1033 and 847 like all these other people, that's probably the time he's not going to come because <laughs> he's coming as a thief in the night, not when you're expecting him. <laughs> I don't know, anybody got anything they want to Say you, you're welcome to say anything you want to say, even when I'm talking. <laughs> I think it was about 594. There was a question. Can you don't have to look it up, but it was something to the effect: Can good people bring about the Lord's coming back? I'm going to read you a couple verses out of Second Peter. Okay. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and God, godliness, waiting for? And hastening the coming. Waiting for and hastening the coming. So maybe there is something to that. There are those who interpret that Alexander Campbell might have been one of them. But then he died in 1866, right after the Civil War, and right after Lincoln was shot. And he got real pessimistic with his view. And so I read a read a his history of him. He had nine daughters. Two sons, all nine daughters, and his wife died of consumption. TB, Alexander Campbell, and his his most promising son died in the pond on the farm. And only left one son left. He sound sounded like he was worse off than Job in, in many ways. You know how he could keep up an optimistic, uh, hopeful spirit after all that. Some people have got it a lot harder than we do. Or at least me. I don't know how hard you got it. Some of you look like you got it pretty hard. <laughs> I'm not looking at you, Fred. Yeah. Oh, yes, I am. <laughs> okay, well, we'll see you next week. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the Senior Minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.